expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. The Enterprise has put in a Rutia 4 to deliver medical supplies following an outbreak of violent protests. Although non-aligned, the planet has enjoyed a long trading relationship with the Federation. Now, a generation of peace has ended with terrorist attacks by Ansata separatists who are demanding autonomy and self-determination for their homeland on the western continent. Recreational shore leave has been prohibited and all away teams have been instructed to beam down armed. We have only a few minutes before our next meeting, Doctor. It's all right, we're finished. Later. Teen 2010, I'm Bob Met. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where protest and terrorism are our themes for the basic balance of the show. And we're joined in studio by someone who's been here twice before, and that is John Thompson, president of the McKenzie Institute. John, welcome to the show. Hello, John. Thank you for inviting me. Um, well, it certainly seems to be a timely time to have you here, doesn't it? Um, you're with the McKenzie Institute. This is actually your third appearance on the show. The last time we had John was in 08. We talked about uh, explaining terrorism again, which was your second round on that issue. And we talked about global warming and climate change history and, and all sorts of things. Today, I think we're going to concentrate a little bit more on some of the current things that are going on. I understand just last week you gave a presentation to the Canadian Senate. And tell us a bit about what that was about. Well, the the Senate, for the fourth time in mm -hmm. uh, uh, basically 24 years, is hosting a um, a special Senate into uh, committee concerning itself with terrorism and in Canada's responses to it. So this was sort of a, a checkup. The Senate saying, you know, what is the current threat? How has it changed since the uh, the last time we were considering this? Uh, and how are our defenses? What are we doing well, and and what isn't working? Now, is this internal? You're talking about strictly or a global viewpoint? Both. Both. Yeah, but it, that's the problem, is that Canada is, as a nation-state, involved in a global situation and a global threat. Also, of course, our responses all have to be tied in with uh, the responses of other nations. So. Now, you were actually presenting on behalf of the McKenzie Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about the Institute? Uh, well, we've been around uh, since 1986. We exist to study organized violence and political instability. Most of that is, has been about terrorism, but it's certainly not the only subject we can find our interest in. Uh, as it happens, for uh, quite a while I've had an interest in uh, rioting, in that point where peaceful protest starts to switch over to something else. Yeah, I see here under your um, your banner, so to speak, you say that you provide research and comment on such diverse subjects as terrorism, as you're mentioning, organized crime, which is another area of interest, uh, political extremism, propaganda, conflict, and other such matters. And it doesn't shy away from controversy. No, we don't receive funding from any government uh, or any uh, major corporation for that matter. 
And it's made that uh, we've been a, a little small, but on the other hand, uh, the benefit to that is that we can always call things exactly as we see them. Mm-hmm. So you're rather independent then. It has, you have so. to be, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. Well, you certainly must have earned a reputation as an objective viewpoint because I've seen you on so many shows. I saw you just yesterday on CTS talking about the whole situation in Korea, of all things. But what's our situation in Canada? What did you tell the Canadian Senate? Are we safe here in Canada? Are we reasonably uh, assured that our government is looking after things the way it should be? Or would you be putting up a red flag? Where would we be in terms of our um, awareness? Well, by and large, the, uh, the the terrorism threat is always evolving and always changing. Uh, I was talking about some of the newest trends that have been occurring in the last little while. For example, Al-Qaeda has really confined its uh, activities to uh, the Middle East and South Asia for the last few years. But uh, the homegrown threat in other Western nations has been growing and increasing. We had the Toronto 18, but we've also been seeing an increasing number of Canadians who are going elsewhere to commit terrorism on behalf of the jihad movement. Uh, Barbara Khalsa is still around, although it's translating itself into an organized criminal society. What do you mean? Canadians going elsewhere? Uh, Well, when we talk about homegrowns, we're Mm -hmm. talking about uh, people who may have come to Canada, in some cases were raised here. So they're they're Canadian citizens and Canadian residents who then elect to get involved in a terrorist group and leave to go commit terrorism elsewhere. But also, uh, of course, in, in Western Europe, the United States, homegrowns are also people uh, who are trying to attack that particular society. We've just seen the Toronto 18 here, That's and that trial is just about concluded. But again, Canadians are thinking that because we haven't seen nearly the intense activities that other people have had, that somehow or other we're safe, and that, that's just demonstrably not true. Are, are you suggesting it's an inevitability of some sort, or, or can we head it off at the pass before anything serious happens in Canada? Well, part of the, the problem, uh, looking at the homegrown phenomenon throughout the entire Western world, is that in almost every country, uh, they have the same problems that we do, that very few of these attacks have succeeded, so everybody's relaxing. Now, the phenomenon that's been noticed in the last couple of years is that these uh, uh, plots are being picked up later and later in the planning cycle and often attacks have been delivered. But one of the other features about homegrowns is they're not that well trained. And you consider the the number of attacks we've seen in the last couple of years where a bomb was actually delivered and failed to detonate. You know, as witness what happened in Times Square a couple of months ago, mm. the, uh, the, the attempt to bring down a plane on Christmas Day, yes. the Haymarket bomb in London. So uh, now that's not actually a, a policy success, that's just luck. That's right, and that's what worries me a bit. Canada hasn't had any close calls that close yet, have we? No, we haven't. Um, I know there was one plane that I understand might have been exploded over this area of of the province. Um, I'm not sure which one that was. I think that might have been... That might have been the Christmas Day attack. It might have exploded over southwestern Ontario on the approaches to Detroit. Yeah, Mm the approaches to Detroit over Windsor, yeah. And what kind? if if that had been successful, what would you think would have happened? Would, Would... our government be looking at the situation any differently than it is now, or are they still looking at it the proper way, irrespective well, of the odds? <laughs> we, we've set the architecture up in place. We, we've completely reworked our, our police intelligence systems. We've uh, set up a number of new organizations. But then, because the urgency has receded, they're all being starved for resources. 
Uh, most uh, police who are involved in counter-terror task forces, frontline workers and the Canadian Border Services agencies, most people involved in CISAs will tell you there's just not enough resources to go around anymore. Uh, terrorism is not the priority that it was. And so, of course, other priorities have asserted themselves, so resources are being shifted away. And most of my friends in police forces who've been involved in counterterrorism, uh, they were all drawn off to Vancouver before the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, they're all working on the G8 and G20. For some of them... Well, that would make sense in a way, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be an obvious terrorist it target would, in a way? But there's also the routine work that mm -hmm. has to be done. Um, and some of them have not been at their, you know, their regular routine activities of uh, regular intelligence gathering for months. And d diverted into some other activity. D diverted saying. into special activities. And now, why is that? Is, is there a feeling of complacency building up? Is, there, is it just a matter of budgets running out because uh, is it not a high enough priority? Um, certainly with the G8 coming in and all that stuff to southern Ontario, we're spending a lot of money on security in that sense. doesn't seem to be we're out of money there. Everybody's complaining about how much we're well, spending. The counter-terror threat in, well, the counter-terror spending for the G8, G20 is about theoretical threats. You know, there was a G7 meeting back in the 1980s in uh, Japan. The Japanese Red Army fired a, uh, a multiple rocket launcher at the building. That's the only concrete attack that's ever occurred on the big international summits mm -hmm. since the, the G7 started and before it became the G8. But there's always the threat. There's always the interest. So right now, the, the police are looking at theoretical threats. In other words... They could attack us this particular way, so let's put our defenses against this particular threat. Um, the real expenditure is also coming against the, the one problem you know is coming to town, which is extremely violent demonstrators. You know, I've always been curious about how you do your work. Um, you study organized violence. You, you study criminal behavior. You study, um, like, I, I don't, I can't imagine organized criminals are coming up to you and giving you confessions and telling you, you know, how, how they operate. How do you find these things out? Who, who's, who's, who are your informants? Would that be the word? I don't know. Sources. Sources? Uh, or, or should I not even be asking this? You got that look on your face. <laughs> Um, this is one of the... Uh, Does the government cooperate with you in any way? Uh, well, people in the government yeah. do sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the, uh, the big open secrets about intelligence gathering. If you go over in Langley, Virginia, and look at the roof of the CIA building, among other things, you'll see dishes to intercept television signal. You know, it's mm -hmm. one of the uh, secrets that, uh, well, not one of the classified secrets, but it's not generally discussed that American news agencies, when their feed is coming in from uh, reporters abroad, all the raw feed is also picked up the CIA and looked at. Most intelligence agencies, anyone who's actually involved in any sort of intelligence function will tell you that 90% of what they do is all open source. You know, you're reading books, you're reading newspaper stories, you're reading uh, columns, you're listening to radio shows. About 8% tends to be from openly interviewing people. Mm. And I guess yeah, it's your job then to take all of that information which is just out there and coalesce it and analyze it and bring it down to a level that it's useful. And also, uh, sometimes I go out and I talk to people or look at things. Uh, the difference between me and an intelligence organization is there's that final 1% to 2%, which is derived from all the stuff that people are fascinated by. 
I don't put listening devices in people's cars. You know, I, I don't tap in their phone lines. I can't do that, and I won't do that, and we're just too small. But that 1% to 2% is... Uh, is the last piece that most intelligence agencies will get involved in. But for everybody who's out there doing something weird and funky in the middle of the night, there are about 90 other people doing very legitimate work. Most CIA officers abroad, most CSIS officers abroad, uh, hand you their business card. You know who you're talking to when... Uh, really? You're being interviewed. Now, you you issue a number of papers, and I've just read one recently called Reviewing the Jihad, number 26, this is April 2010, so just two months ago. And in there, you're talking about the fact that Western world scarcely recognized war with the Islamic Jihad stumbles on, but we're handicapped by our own inability to correctly name or identify the enemy. So who's the enemy in this terrorism war? This war on the terrorism and the jihad. Who is the enemy? Well, it's the jihad movement, but actually... No uh, one particular individual, not Osama bin Laden per se, not any particular country. Not any particular country, not any particular individual, not any particular group. Uh, it's an expression of Islam. Islam itself... Uh, well, I, I guess actually you, one of the, the biggest critics of Islam is Ibn Warak, who was raised in Islamic society. And he talked about three kinds of Islam. There was the Islam that Muhammad created, the faith. Uh, then there was the Islam that his followers designed when they made their decisions, assembled the Koran, shackled their cultural beliefs onto the faith. And then Ibn Warwick talks about the Islam that actually manifested the sum total of the arts and cultures and achievements of, of Muslim people. And his comment was, you know, their success is in spite of the other two Islams. Uh, you also had, uh, I think, well, most forcefully last week, uh, Hersey Alley was in town and, and, and lecturing again. And uh, her comments about the problems you have in Islam, there is a lot of good in Islam. Problem is, a lot of the good has to be achieved by ignoring tenets of the faith. Let me be perfectly honest, that's also, I think, uh, true in just about every religion. But Islam is always... Well, the religions that have become tempered have been come tempered by reason and, and experience and yeah, common sense to we, a large We don't degree. burn witches much no. anymore, not that I've noticed. Uh, but in Islam, the uh, ideology has always been there and readily picked up. And again, it's got that much more militant history than other faiths have. So in a world today where you've got a lot of young men who are you know, angry, restless, looking for something to do, uh, where you've got the, the basic needs uh, of so many people taken care of that they can start to look towards uh, such luxuries as militant self-expression. Here is this ready-made ideology that can be picked up and employed. And you know, 30 years ago when we were having to deal with the radical left or with neo-Nazis, now the new power ideology is the jihad. Um, problem with this is that jihad has got much longer legs. I mean, it's an ideology that's been around for 14 centuries, and if Islam hasn't been militant all the time, it's largely because so many Muslims have been ignoring so much of their religion just to live quietly. In, in my paper on reviewing the jihad, I sort of observed that actually most rulers of Islamic countries ignore much of their own religion in order to have a peaceful rule. And that's also meant that they're always outflanked by their critics. In an Islamic society, if you want to criticize the ruler, you wrap yourself up in the religion and attack them unassailably on religious grounds. 
And so you have sort of evolving this two-track policy you see, and even in today's Middle Eastern governments, you look at a, um, a country like uh, Egypt, or for that matter, Syria, where you will tolerate your critics being more Muslim than you are uh, up to a point. But once they start to become really troublesome, you give them a carrot to leave and a stick if they stay at home. You were saying that in your paper, the Saudi government has spent billions of dollars picking off the Wahhabis and kicking them out of the country, enticing them to leave. Say, yes, yes, well, go that's ahead. A, that's a tricky case, because <laughs> remember, the Wahhabi sect is the Saudi state religion. The, Officially, yes. Yeah, the, the Saudi uh, royal family is tied up with the sect. But they've been doing as much as they can to export the worst Wahhabi preachers and the, the most uh, militant young men to leave the country. They've been doing that uh, basically since 1979. Uh, when the Wahhabis tried to take over the Grand Mosque and a, a thousand people were killed in a shootout. Uh, Syria has been no stranger for supporting terrorism, but again, uh, when Syria was threatened by the Muslim Brotherhood, they they tortured and killed about a thousand Muslim brothers inside their own prisons, and there's the uh, city they crushed. Listen, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like to pick up on that, but first talk a little bit more about the home thing and then expand into the international scene, I think, because we've got the G8 coming up. I know you had some things to say about that. We were talking about uh, a theme that you were talking about earlier, something to do with violence without risk that really fascinated me. And we'll talk about that after this quick break for a smile. I don't understand why anybody would, would even attack us. I don't even get it. Why do you think Iran helped us out after, you know, September 11th? You think they like us? Go to the internet and see the things that were written from Iranian, you know, people about us on September 10th. You'll see some heinous stuff. American infidel, dying pool of blood, all that craziness. But then September 11th occurred and our president came out and he spoke like Clint Eastwood at the end of Unforgiven. <laughs> Remember Unforgiven? At the end of it, when he was like, if anybody shoots at me, I will shoot you, I will hunt you down, I will kill your friends, I will burn your barn down. That's the way he came out. He was like, we will find you, those who helped, those who obeyed it, those who looked at you, those who even know. As soon as he said that, we got a phone call from Iran. What can we do to help you, my friends? We were talking smack yesterday. You didn't believe any of that? Come on! We try to tell joke, we are not funny people. We apologize. We're not intimidated by the terrorists here in New York. It's really the people from the other states that worry too much. They were interviewing some guy from North Dakota. He goes, it can happen here. No, it can't. <laughs> you have to build a civilization first. Ooh, crash a plane into a steak and shake. That'll change the world. You blow North Dakota back into the Stone Ages, you're only setting them back like six months. <laughs> I'm a little paranoid with the terrorists, though. I, I definitely think there should be a federal marshal in every airplane. Why not? I think there should be one in every taxi cab just to be on the safe side. 
I'm waiting on that wrong cab ride. Take me to 32nd and 1st? You want to go to Allah? No, not at all. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW. We're not 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation. We're joined in studio by John Thompson, president of the McKenzie Institute, which looks into organized violence, crime, and terrorism, both at home and abroad. John, we've got the, the G8 summits coming up very shortly, and it seems to have a lot of people concerned for security reasons. Um, you had some interesting issues with regard to that we talk, when we talked earlier. What do you mean by this violence without risk? Well, the, <clears throat> the one threat, of course, I was talking about the, the theoretical threat of terrorism, which has to be mm-hmm. prepared against. But with these international summits, there's the one group you know is going to turn up is this great huge crowd of demonstrators. And most of them, I guess you could describe as being out of the, the old left, but... Uh, most of them are peaceful. Ninety percent of them are inherently peaceful. Uh, in fact, I actually kind of find it fun to watch those demonstrations. They're quite colorful and <laughs> okay. um, like a parade. When you say the old left, you mean what? No, the the, the leftovers, the the, leftovers. You know, the international <laughs> socialists, the you know the Trotskyites, and you know, a number of the, they're still the around, anarchists, are they? Yeah, and the trade unionists. Well, yeah. it's sort of like you know, oh. Night of the Living Dead. They yeah. haven't quite realized. Um, <laughs> But the thing is, uh, if you th- the first point to make about them, though, is that they've got more causes than I've got socks. And if you audit one of their demonstrations, take a look at the signs, usually about you know, 20 to 30 percent of the, the people turn up with the wrong signs. They just heard there's a demonstration, so, you know, they, oh, okay, you know, Saturday, turn mm-hmm. out in front of here, and they bring the wrong signs. Professional provocateurs to everything? Well, no, not uh, provocateurs. I said they're, they're peaceful, but... Demonst- uh, protest is how they define themselves. They've got to look in the mirror every morning and tell themselves they're protesters. They're the people up against the system. And that you just keep inserting the cause. So if you go to the G20 summit and protest, you're actually feeling a sense of being bigger than you actually are. Yeah, and it, it, again, you, you're, you're here because you really feel about the issue. You, you, you care about homelessness. You might not actually have invited homeless people to live in your own house. You, you might not actually work for Habitat for Humanity, but you're out demonstrating for them, and that must say that you care. So you're doing nothing constructive. So instead of doing something constructive or something that actually might take a little bit of well, uh, effort or money on your part, why not just go out and say that you protested at the G20, therefore... Well, there, there is a, a public service guilt. here. They, you know, they, they, they are putting some issues on the table the rest of us should occasionally think about if even if we don't need to listen to their arguments in detail but uh, 90% are inherently peaceful and about 8 to 9% are the sort of people who might get a little frisky if they think they can get away with it and there's 1 that's to a big, 2% that's a big percentage actually it is with a big crowd yeah. 1 to 2% of the people who are actually there um, well, they're extreme sportsmen. You know, they're described as the black block. It's not a group. It's a it's sort of a technique. But these are the people who turn up at demonstrations because they actually want to engage in violence. It's it's really an extreme sport. They could be described as being anarchists, which is a, I think, a slur on the intellectual anarchists or the the lifestyle anarchists. But that's a term that has gone back to describe violence for over a hundred years. Well, th- this is the group that use the ideology to justify their violence. But the real point is that they need the ideology, just like a terrorist embraces an ideology to excuse their conduct. So here, you know, they, they have the ideology that you paste the cause of the moment on. 
but off you go to throw rocks at the police. And the G8, G20 is a great place to do that. And of course, for them, it's risk-free violence. So you, you get all the sense of the drama and the, the excitement, the adrenaline rush uh, of combat with someone who's not likely to hurt you. I'd like to get into that a little more. Why is it risk-free? Well, if you try this sort of behavior in most of the world's capital cities, the police will shoot you. Uh, here, you know, that you they're behind their barrier. They've got their riot shields up. Tear gas canisters might come whipping back occasionally. They probably won't in Toronto. I, at least I don't think so. Um, if you want to be a real enthusiast and rush the police and, and start uh, wailing on them with a baseball bat that you had a, a sign staple to a couple of seconds earlier, you might get truncheoned. But uh, for the most part, you, you get all the drama of confrontation without the real risk of bodily harm. And of course, the next day, if you've actually been picked up, well, the courts are all jammed and you're playing the little game of I'm hiding my identity, you can't guess who I am. And here is a, a court system that's suddenly got 700 protesters and all they really want to do is get them out of town. So there's no record that you're actually there. So away you go. And you could do the next thing, same time, next year, at the next summit. So that's, I guess, preferable than, for example, having a bloody Sunday like in the Irish tradition where they just basically just only, what was it, a couple of days ago, apologized for it officially. Well, when, when did we get to the point where we tolerated this kind of roughness like a protest is one thing peaceful protest but once you're throwing rocks do, why do we even tolerate that well uh, again there is a long history uh, of protest you look at like, the dynamics of a crowd because you can also apply the same thing um say your your hometown team has just won the world championship and out come all the sports fans they're excited they're jubilant 90 percent of them are are just elated and the, but there's the one to two percent are going to use the cover of the crowd and the excitement, and suddenly they'll be throwing rocks through the windows of electronic stores and helping themselves. Then there's the eight percent types. If they see the police don't know what to do, uh, aren't there in numbers or aren't prepared to stop them, they'll mm -hmm. join in. Um, so is this problem getting worse over time, or is it getting better? Because what? is it is it even maybe it's preferable to what we were doing before? What, what's your take on this? I think uh, you actually have here a natural phenomenon of the way humans behave. Um, in group situations. In group situations, if, if there's a lot of passion about. But it's been studied from both ends. Police sometimes study these crowds and try to find ways of controlling them, damping them down or limiting or diverting them. But you also have, again, people within the crowd, especially black block types, how to exploit the situation. Mm -hmm. and, and to do so for their own ends and for their own pleasure. And, and what happens to them if they get arrested or detained by the police, is there any recourse to that? Is there a specific charge that they would be charged with? Are they just locked up overnight and then let go? What's the what's the usual? Well, again, often, often the situation is you don't really want to hang on to them, uh, especially if you've got several thousand of these people concentrated in your city and say mm -hmm. if you've arrested four or 500 of them, uh, they'll jam your court system up for years. Isn't it tradition normally to go after the leadership if there's a leadership of some sort or I, you're I, saying you're almost telling me this these kind of situations are in a way unresolvable except well, by the, minimizing the damage as much as you can. When I've watched them the leaders are often uh, well backed they're often hard to spot uh, and of course nowadays with the uh, cell phones and everything else uh, some of the other techniques that are out there you, ha you have sort of flash organizations and other activities that go on and there's not 
A hundred years ago, if you watched a riot, there was somebody out in front going, follow me. It was usually the person the police would concentrate on. In fact, actually, a lot of uh, crowd control techniques originated uh, by concentrating on the leaders. Now there isn't a leader that you can spot. Now, is there a particular type of person that might protest at a G8 summit as opposed to um, the other kind of violence we've been talking about up till now? Um, what, in, more like, you know, jihad type of, type of violence. We're not worried about that kind of thing during the G8, are we? Or are we just talking about homegrown people who are just there to agitate for the sake of the old left. <laughs> yeah, well, what we are seeing is mostly people out, out of the old left, although I there is some suspicion in Toronto that uh, uh, there are some street kids, the sort that will be attracted to a, a potential riot situation who have an eye. Well, we have a situation here in London this morning, in fact, where a couple of kids got arrested last a couple nights ago, I think, and there's a little bit of a of a controversy here about whether they should have been detained in a jail cell overnight because they were putting posters on mailboxes in the city of London encouraging people to go protest at the G8. And so I, I think there's more to the story according to the police chief, but uh, that's what we've heard so far. Uh, you know, the G8 and G20 summits, they would be mostly protested by, again, left-wingers, wouldn't they? People who are mostly opposed to free trade or trade of some sort. Capitalism. Capitalism is that is that the general or type of person? Pretty well anything. People who think that the world would be improved if only we listened to them, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is, as we know, is not an uncommon human failing. Well, maybe they're right. Maybe we should be listening to them. Who knows? I think we're <laughs> guilty of that too. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we've got to take a quick break at the bottom of the hour here. What we're about to hear just before we go to break is uh, was actually originally it's, it's the end of a of a piece uh, from CBC News World with Hersey Alley and Avi Lewis before he left for Al Jazeera. And uh, she was, uh, you, you were talking about her just being in Canada recently again talking, and here she gives uh, Avi a bit of a piece of her mind in terms of his contempt that he seems to express towards freedom. And on the other side of the break, when we come back after the breaks, we'll hear John Stewart with Thomas Friedman, who wrote a book called Hot, Flat and Crowded regarding... Um, uh, the approach in uh, the Mideast and what the U.S. is doing and what the proper approach is. See what you think about what he might have to say. We'll be back right after this. When the Democrats are in office, everyone is happy, or when the Republicans are in office, everything is bad. It's that both Republicans and uh, Democrats and the majority of Americans, fortunately, feel that they can run for office, they can get power. As long as you're staggeringly rich totally connected as long and in the as pockets you of your donors you can do anything you want in america in america you can come with no, no penny nothing no money and you can become very wealthy tell me which muslim country is there a can school do that? where they teach you these american cliches is it part of your is it part of your application process that you have to i'm no. oh, sorry I i'm so upset that i'm losing my cards here i can't believe you just said that i read alex the tocqueville and i read about democracy and I lived in countries that had no democracy, that had no founding fathers, that could not, have not invented or could not resolve. So I don't find myself in the same luxury as you do. You grew up in freedom and you can spit on freedom because you don't know what it is not to have freedom. I haven't. It strikes me as the entire folly in this war on terror, and it, it started really in Iraq. Right. Afghanistan we had to go into. 
The Taliban were allowing al-Qaeda to set a base there. Al-Qaeda attacked us. We had to go there, attack them to destroy. The minute we pulled people away from that goal and went to Iraq, well, in truth, what, is the, the minute we, we began to, to go off the yeah, rails. The, the, in truth, what, Afghanistan um, went bad, not because we had a lack of troops there, uh, in, in truth, because we actually won, we, we took the whole country. Um, the Afghan government is basically falling apart. Uh, mm -hmm. does, it delivers no services, uh, no, no justice, um, uh, no governance. And the argument is, because of that, uh, the Taliban has made all these inroads. And I think there's some truth to that, that people have basically gravitated to them just as a force of authority in a really chaotic environment. Therefore, the argument is that we've got to go in and basically nation-build Afghanistan. We've got to build the government. And the question is, can it ever be self-sustaining? Well, and I don't know. It feels and, like the paternalism of the early 1900s that kind of got us into this mess yeah. is being repeated now, still with the same, yeah. I think, idealistic goals, right. but, but now in, in reverse. We're going to go in there and repair all the damage we supposedly yeah. did. And it, it seems folly on, on both ends. Well, I, you know, my own feeling about Afghanistan right now is that it's simply a bridge too far. That uh, the country complete, we can't a, afford it as a country. And I think the goal of rebuilding Afghanistan, I mean, that's really, uh, it, it, it's but really I, I something we cannot afford. Right a bridge too far would be a hell of a name for a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome back. You're listening to CHRW, where you're listening to Just Right. And the number is 519-661-3600 to call if you want to join in the conversation with John Thompson, president of the McKenzie Institute. He's an expert on um, organized violence, terrorism, and I understand we have a caller on the line now, do we? Hello, Hi. caller. Yes, Bob, it's Paul calling. How are Paul, you how are you? Hi, Paul. Yeah, good. Hey, Robert. I have a question for John, if I may. Please. Uh, yeah, um, John, uh, as you understand, and you said earlier today that uh, violent jihad has really been a part of militant Islam, basically from the beginning. That's nothing new. Um, growing up, I certainly remember a lot of hijackings overseas. Uh, there was the Achille Lauro, and then there's a lot of airline hijackings. But this sort of terrorism on our own doorstep, I don't really remember so much of. Um, so my question really is, what is it you think has happened, or what is it has now allowed terrorism to land really in our own backyard, you know, 9-11, and what, what, what has happened in the dynamic to allow that to occur? Um, that's a, actually, that's the first time anyone's ever asked me that, and uh, yeah, I think the answer to that one, I suppose, is obvious, that 30 or 40 years ago, we really didn't have uh, much of a uh, population of uh, people from the Middle East here. If you look at the history of Middle Eastern immigration in the United States, I mean, there's the, the first, in the 1870s, uh, Syrians, most of them Christian, and the few who were Muslim just sort of vanished in the great melting pot without a trace. Um, but since the Second World War, there's been an in increasing immigration from uh, all sources around the world, mostly to our benefit. But, uh, yes, from Islamic countries, it means that we have a dynamic. You know, the first generation are people who've mostly come here to get away from conditions in their homeland, build a new life for them, uh, for themselves and their children. The second generation uh, tends to follow the, the same, but... You do have some people, is often the case in a, in a new community, who uh, have identity issues, not quite sure who they are, and will be looking for militant uh, expressions of their identity. Uh, we've seen that often enough in the past. But what also makes it, the Islamic community different is that here in, in, in North America or uh, Australia, but also to a lesser extent to uh, Great Britain and the Netherlands, 
there's been a very, very long tradition of absorbing all sorts of people from outside and, and peacefully integrating or assimilating them. Uh, not completely, but enough that we have the common values that we all stick to. But with the Islamic world, especially with the, the oil money that started to come out in the 1960s, we've got these countervailing influences. We've got the, the Wahhabi Dawah, uh, funded by oil money out of the Saudis. Uh, we've got Tablighi Jamaat out of the Diobandi school in India and uh, other groups that are putting money and activists in to prevent the assimilation mm -hmm. of, of Muslims who've arrived inside the Western world. And this is something we've never experienced before, and we don't know how to deal with it. We've normally expected people who've come here want to fit in. We've never had to compete with a countervailing influence. This is brand new. Oh, you've given me a lot to work with there. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, yeah, well. excellent show this week. Oh, we'll be hearing from you next week. That's right. By the okay. way, that's uh, that's Paul Lambert. He's our Euro correspondent from Sweden. Ah. And uh, I expect to have him on the show next week about some related subjects. Hey, John, uh, I just wanted to ask you a question just related to what yeah. Paul was asking. 31 years ago was the uh, overthrow of the Shah of Iran. Uh, surely the fact that we had the first state, I think, ever, as you pointed out in your paper here, that was actually run by the religious mullahs, that certainly must have had something to do with the exportation of uh, jihad. Well, well, actually, there were three events in 1979 that all combined. Uh, I think the, the larger picture, though, was that for discontent inside the Islamic world, uh, you had in the 60s and 70s, it was all sort of Marxist in orientation, either nationalist, militarist, or, or Marxist to some variety. And if you look at, for example, the Palestinian groups, they'd flirted with all those different ideologies, and none of them had really gelled. But 1979... Uh, you had the, the takeover by the Wahhabis of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, and about 1,000 people were killed in that takeover. It's, it's an incident the Saudis would prefer the world forgot. Yes, I understand that they actually used, um, what, nerve gas or biological weapons to fish um, them out of the Lethal uh, blood cyanide-based poison gas mm. supplied by French military experts who were temporarily made Muslim uh, for the purpose of uh, flushing the remainder out of the cellar. Something today we'd call a weapon of mass destruction. Yep. Um, the other thing, of course, was the Iranian Revolution. And actually, the Iranian Revolution was first. The uh, takeover of the Grand Mosque was second. And, of course, the third instigation for the, the overall jihad was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Yes, yes. Which, from a Muslim point of view, was real jihad. Here you had a hostile foreign ideology aggressively taking over an Islamic society. Officially atheist. To convert it. Yes. I mean, it, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, it, it was, for most Muslims, sacred duty to, uh, right out of to the, fight them. Uh, right out of the Quran. Yeah. yeah. Now, we were just listening earlier to um, some of the comments by John Stewart and Thomas Friedman, and they were talking about nation-building as being a uh, means of dealing with the, with the issue overseas. Is that the right way to go? Should we be nation-building at all? Well, it, and with Afghanistan, it's one of those cases where you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. The, the problem was that... Uh, well, which, which damnation is preferable? <laughs> <laughs> I I, if, 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 that, if that's my two choices, you know, well, uh, the damnation, how do we know which one's better and which one's worse? I, I guess the damnation that we left Afghanistan alone, you know, when the Soviets pulled out, we left them to their own devices. The world said, okay, problem over. Uh, then you had the squabbling warlords. Then you had the... Um, the Taliban, who were a creation of the Dawah, you know, 
coming back in, occupying the country, and suddenly you've got it as a shelter for international terrorism, and Al-Qaeda set up its training bases there. So even what passes for um, a central government in Afghanistan, which has never been a strong institution in that country or an efficient one because the country is just too poor, is preferable to what happened earlier when Al-Qaeda was actually openly able to train tens of thousands of people with all the leisure they wanted. You know, the, the, the hardcore, well-trained uh, terrorists of the, the old Al-Qaeda cadres were a very, very dangerous threat. Fortunately, most of them have since been killed. You know, we can keep coping with these homegrown types. You, I've often wondered whether the terrorists or whoever organized 9-11 looks back on that and regards that either as a mistake or a, a big plus. Because, of course, it pulled the Western world over into the Mideast in a big way. Was that something that was really desired? I'm still, I'm still working on this theory that I think they wanted us over there. Somebody did. Otherwise, why would you attack the Trade Center? Oh, again, that's a, a simple question with a complex answer. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> um, I suppose one feature of modern life that we also see out, out of the, the radical left, uh, is, or what's left of it, this technique... Uh, Intellectual tra technique in postmodernism is you ignore history. There's always the mm -hmm. brand new future to look forward to, and you could ignore your past mistakes. Keep trying the same tactic till it works. Um, and the Islamic movement doesn't count its casualties. They don't reckon on them. You know, we've had situations where, for example, uh, um, it took tens of thousands of dead al-Qaeda terrorists who were flooding from all over the Islamic world to come into Iraq before they started to realize they just weren't working. They weren't killing enough Westerners or destabilizing the country enough. In fact, they were actually, two or three years ago, they were talking about how they'd been defeated in Iraq. Then, of course, the new administration starts winding down the American presence in Iraq and al-Qaeda is reasserting itself there. That's also a, a feature of the the Islamic militancy, though, is, of course, martyrdom is an end to be achieved. You know, the, it's a good thing if you actually throw your life away. Uh, and this, this is one of the things that is a strong motivator um, for many, many people who've been become involved in the jihad, is the idea that somehow or other your, your act of martyrdom will transition you to a much, much better afterlife. And for a number of people, it's, it's actually been a, a useful argument. Now... In your very first sentence, very first line in reviewing the jihad, your very first few words read, the Western world's scarcely recognized war. I mean, that, that alone says a lot to me, that you're saying we're at war, that, and we're not even really almost aware of it, like, yet we are, in a well, sense. We keep talking about the phenomenon of terrorism, yeah. where actually we're being challenged by an ideology. And we, we've refused to think of some of the implications of actually fighting that ideology. For example, we keep mopping up the, uh, the people who actually get involved in terrorism when we never even attacked the, the, the schools or the, the intellectual centers that keep generating the ideology. Is that because of political correctness? Uh, that's the easiest way of summarizing We don't it, want yes. to go into the madrasas and the schools and find out what they're teaching and say that this is wrong because they're of a different culture? Is that what our fear is? Well, that's part of it, but also look at it, say, an internal perspective inside Canada. We have been carefully conditioning ourselves for decades to ignore all questions of religion because we've been down that path before and we didn't like it. 
Now do we want to actually, if we're going to start fighting against the, the Wahhabi Dawah or Tablighi Jamaat, are we actually going to then say, okay, this religion can't practice here? You know, this is the... It's one of the part of the essential nature of terrorism is that the terrorist always throws the uh, heads I win, tails you lose conundrum at you. And, and this is one of the situations here. Do we actually want to discriminate against one particular sect of one particular faith? Well, in Canada, remembering what that can lead to. In Canada, it's also becoming very fearful for a lot of people, even on our position here on a radio show, to talk about this because of the human rights commissions and their total clampdown on speaking about Islam or or an ideology that isn't uh, traditionally Western. That's, uh, that's actually an easier one to handle. I mean, freedom of speech has to be free. And by re restricting it, we lose that particular freedom. I and mean, that's so much easier to handle. But again, though, do we actually go to our judges and say, okay, you're, uh, any... Anything coming from this quarter is automatically vexatious use of lawfare. You know, it's legal harassment designed to facilitate uh, uh, a hostile ideology, and therefore you can dismiss that. Throw it out immediately. Well, we'd have to pass some very special, very, very particular laws to actually get to that result. And again, that's... I. I think that'd be useful because one of these days it could be me that's being uh, sued for harassment again and it just and there's a thing about jihadist lawsuits is that they, they always start with a big huff and a puff but as soon as you get to the point of discovery where you can find out who's behind the lawsuit, who's paying for it they drop their complaints and vanish in the meantime you've just spent fifty to $100,000 on a lawyer and uh, but anyway <clears throat> If we have techniques in there to insulate, protect people from that, well, what will they be used on next? But we don't have those uh, protect protections, yeah, do we? Yeah, I think we're actually going to need them, or we're going to have to tell the human rights commissions to go back to, uh, you know, landlords who won't rent for tenants and, you know, individual instances of uh, hate crime and ignore the whole social agenda, which is uh, an end devoutly to be wished. Interesting. Let's take a quick break for uh, another smile, and we might just change the tone of our subject a little bit after this break. And we'll be right back after this. He must understand that once you start interfering in the internal squabbles of other countries, you're on a very slippery slope. Even the foreign secretaries grasp that. <laughs> so what was the other point? Yes, well, the Arabs have put down a motion of the United Nations condemning Israel. Naturally, we'll be voting on the Arab side. Oh, naturally. Yeah. But I gather that the PM wants us to abstain. Oh, surely not. Why? Well, something about the PLO starting at this time faults on both sides. The usual sentimental nonsense. Mm. Sucking up to the Americans as well. This is a great country, America. You realize in this country it only costs 70 cents a day to sponsor a starving person? And it costs $2.99 a minute to talk dirty to somebody. <laughs> One hour of phone sex will feed 259 starving people. <laughs> if we could somehow get these starving people to just talk dirty to us, 
Yeah, the answers are out there. You just gotta look for them. I'm famished. Call me. <laughs> there you go. Anything's possible in America, eh? <laughs> Not according to Abby Lewis. No, that's for sure. John, this, this is what seems to be almost a different subject, but you, ha you wrote an interesting piece on Canada's naval heritage, and you just, uh, I guess, been on board Canada's frigate HMCS Halifax in Norfolk, Virginia. Yeah, tell, I, us, tell us a bit about that. I was reading your article, and uh, there's some fascinating things you say here. Well, uh, I'd been in the, uh, the Canadian Army for 13 years, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, that was over 20 years ago, I'm afraid to say. But the... Uh, I was invited by the Canadian Navy to uh, spend uh, some time on board one of our uh, warships when they were doing a, a working up exercise uh, before a Persian Gulf deployment. And Why would you get an invitation from the Navy? Did they just write you letters <laughs> and they must know about you? Well, this is John Thompson yeah. of the McKinsey Institute. Well, uh, yeah. I'm not sure exactly how it was generated, but I didn't say no. Okay. Um, and as is usual when I'm in a strange environment, I've got my eyes and ears open and I'm drinking in as much information as I can. and. Um, suddenly realized I had not actually seen the Navy in its working environment before and uh, how it actually functions. And it was, well, again, a, a very solid educational experience. But it got, also got me thinking that uh, this is the 100th anniversary of the Canadian Navy this year. And again, it's an asset. That, you know, Canadians have largely focused on the Army in the last little while, but we forget what it is the Navy does. And most Canadians are totally unaware of uh, the naval history that we've got in this country. I mean, to condense it as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. out of our ten provincial capitals, five of them have been directly influenced by naval affairs in, in their history. I mean, Victoria and Halifax began life as naval bases. That's certainly understandable. Yeah, St. John has had you know Navy and ships out of it all the time. Toronto is York, you know, got burned down because it was a naval base in the War of 1812. And, of course, Quebec City had been seized and menaced and captured and uh, recaptured by naval expeditions numerous times. Even Ottawa, as our national capital, was chosen because of naval reasons. But uh, some of the other little simple home truths about what our Navy is about, and uh, it's, I think, one of our most under, uh, underappreciated assets people don't really understand what the the function of a warship is because it's not just for combat though it has to be designed for that but it's a thousand other little uses day to day is there a reason for that that we understand less and less about our the role of our military because i've noticed that even being a canadian trend especially over the liberal years as they were dismantling more and more military um, installations and things like that um, is it just or are Canadians not interested anymore? Because it's certainly a, a key component of, of even national identity is to have a military of some sort. Well, I think it's 90% blessing and 10% curse that uh -huh. uh, we are such a peaceful kingdom. I mean, the, the last battle fought in Canadian territory was in 1885, and most countries would regard it as a mere skirmish. Um, world War II, although we were fully involved, well, in both world wars we were fully involved, but... Um, no enemy ever attacked our soil. We we are a peaceful kingdom, and f for good reason. I mean, it's it's been a very good thing for us. But it does mean that we are a very relaxed people who have a great deal of difficulty understanding there can be now, you, threats posed against us. You suggested we even have uh, like some trouble enforcing our laws. Uh, we don't have enough ships to enforce maritime laws, and th th that might be a problem with the fishing rights 
issues that we have on well, the Well, that's one of the reasons why the fisheries collapsed. Oh, really? Yeah, just because, just because we, we weren't patrolling and keeping... We weren't patrolling, we weren't enforcing our laws, and by the, the time we actually understood where the cod were going... In fact, actually, we only... Is that really something that, that, that a Navy would do? Is that... Is that uh, it sounds more like games and fishery or something like that. Coast well, we Guard? don't have oh. much of a Coast Guard either. Oh. In fact, actually, the Coast Guard is an issue you might want to take up someday because uh, most of its personnel are volunteers who pay for their own uniforms and some of their own supplies. Um, but the fisheries patrols... Again, we don't have many fishery ships, but if you're going to enforce your national law, especially on... Uh, um, out at a distance from your own soil. You have to have a warship to do it. So a lot of Canadian warships, you know, they, they will do fisheries patrols and be carrying fisheries officers on board. But if you want to get a ship that's poaching to haul over, under international law, you need to have a warship out mm-hmm. there to say, heave to, or I will fire a shot across your bows. You know, I might have known this before, but it struck me again when I read it in your article. You, you, you suggest the gun on a warship is as symbolic as it is real. And that the notion of territorial waters originating as a three-mile limit, I'd always wondered about that. Because that was the longest range that an 18th century muzzle-loading cannon could reach. Is that right? So that's what established... Is that, that's, what's, that's what established the three-mile limit. Is that right? Well, Essentially? people... T- yeah. <laughs> Practicality. <laughs> and then it became a 12-mile limit in the 19th century mm-hmm. because of the range of new battleship guns. and not right range from the shore, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Not uncoincidentally, now a lot of countries talk about a 200-mile economic zone or a 200-mile uh, economic territory, which... Not in coincidentally, it's about the average range of an anti-ship missile. Yeah, I was just going to say, what happens with missiles that can reach anywhere in the world? Do we claim the rest of the world <laughs> as our territory? Well, your, uh, your standard anti-ship missile uh, could reach about 200 nautical miles. Oh, amazing. John, believe it or not, the hour has gone. Can you believe it, Robert? Is there anybody uh, or any way, John, that people can uh, perhaps support the McKenzie Institute or contact you? Well, uh, it's all there on our, our website, McKenzieInstitute.com, so, um, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. That's M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E Institute.com. And uh, you'll be able to find a lot of these essays there as well, I imagine, wouldn't you? Freely available. Excellent. Thank you very much, John. Hope to have you again sometime in the future. Look forward to it. That's it for today. Take care, Robert. Take care, Bob. Ira, I guess we're out of here today. As for the rest of you, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right. And be right here next week. See you then. Bye-bye. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be I was watching the Osama Bin Laden video that got all that controversy. He was eating this white mushy stuff with his fingers on the video. How scared am I supposed to be of this guy? He doesn't even have a fork. <laughs> it takes away all his power. We have the most sophisticated terrorist devices. Allah has blessed us greatly. Ooh, white mushy stuff. I'm waiting for Sally Struthers to pop out in front of the camera. This is Osama. Osama lives in a small damp cave with 50 other terrorists. For only 70 cents a day, 